As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Bruce, I know you were there this week. Stu, I go every week. There's stuff I get there that I cannot get at Ralph's, which is our local uh, big supermarket in Southern California, I guess in all of California. But Trader Joe's is a must stop for our family every week just for so many things. And indeed, whether you're looking for snacks for game time, steaks for the grill at dinner time, or sweets for any time, check out your neighborhood Trader Joe's for the best values on the best tasting stuff every day. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, have you filled out your bracket yet? Not yet, Stu. I'm kind of going to be in the deep end of the pool for myself because SI is asking me to cover the San Diego. It's not a regional. What do we call these things? First round events? Uh, that is a pod. San Diego pod. So I've tried to get up to speed a little bit, but I'll be honest. I, going into the weekend, I could probably name two players on West Virginia a couple of players on Auburn, and the rest of my teams. Ron Baker's no longer at Wichita State, right? I was a little alarmed. We were talking going into the weekend. We thought maybe Gonzaga would be there, and you asked me if Ronnie Turioff was still there. I was joking. I've seen Ronnie <laughs> Turioff in the NBA. But, um, yeah, it's crazy. I was, I was telling a friend of mine this. Like, this is probably as far, like, out of the loop in college basketball as for a season as I've been since I was probably nine years old. Like I remember when I was a little kid, you know, Louisville had Daryl Griffith. They were a fun team to watch. You know, I may not have known a ton of teams, but I knew a lot more than I think I probably know knew going into this week. Now I've tried to get up to speed on some stuff, but well, you know what that means? You're going to, if you are in any sort of bracket pool, this is the year you're going to win it. Cause I really do feel like the less, you know, the better you do. Because if you're a you know, college basketball nut and you know, you overthink it. You're like, oh boy, you know, this is a great favorable matchup here for Charleston against whoever. And you just talk yourself into all kinds of silly things. I did notice of- that on the uh, athletic, on the field house, they had ex- expert brackets from five writers. And they all picked a Virginia 
Villanova championship game, which would be the top two teams in the whole field. How that never happens, right? Did the, uh, the top two teams in the whole field playing in the championship game? Yeah, that's usually not the chalk way. About I guess it was about ten years ago. I don't know. Whenever North Carolina beat Illinois for yep, it worked it out was, that way that year. Yeah, and actually, I won the ESPN magazine pool. I don't know, it was like eight hundred dollars. The crazy thing there was. Might have been the last feature I ever did for college basketball. Like Illinois was undefeated for a long stretch of the season. It was the D Brown, Darren Williams, Luther Head team, and myself and two other my colleagues basically spent a week all access with them. And so you got to know everybody, and you know, like in and out of the program. And they had a guy who was, I think, their lead team manager. He was a student. He was a senior, and um, I saw him before the game. And I am a little superstitious. And so I know if UNC wins, then I'm going to make close to $1,000. And if they don't, then I don't know what I make, maybe 100 And so I see him, and I was like, well, do I say, like, good luck tonight just in passing or whatever? And I was like, eh, I don't know. So I just ended up saying, hey, Matt, hope you have, hope you have a great night or something like that. And fortunately for North Carolina and Roy Williams, they won that night. But it was kind of... Uh, it, it seems like forever ago, and I was I think about that a little bit because you know we go to these conference meetings out in Arizona every May. You see Bruce Weber there, but obviously he's now at K State, and you know at the time, I mean I don't know what he's. I'll tell you how long ago that but. was. Two thousand five is when I was still covering college basketball almost as closely as football. So I kind of remember, you know, if you tell a year from that point, I can remember a lot about the season. This is how long ago 2005 was. In the first round, I covered a big upset. UW-Milwaukee as a 12 seed. Actually, was Bruce Pearl the coach? I can't remember who they beat. But yes, Bruce Pearl was the coach. Think about how long ago that was. It was like three NCAA investigations ago. That's what exactly, that was. <laughs> exactly. All right, so what's on your mind? If We're going to have on in a little bit our friend Ryan Abraham, who knows all things USC and Pac-12. And we're gonna, they, they were actually one of the bigger storylines for basketball on Selection Sunday. They got snubbed. We want to talk. They've opened spring practice as well. Uh, what else is on your mind in football right now? Uh, I want to talk about a couple of things. This one, I'm going to bounce off you quick. So I, I know you've been tied up with bracket stuff, but there was some news about one of Nebraska's all-time great players, and arguably, I would say one of the probably I don't know where we had him on our top 50 list, but probably one of the five, maybe the most dominant defensive lineman in your era covering college football. Would you say in Dominican Sue? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I voted for him for the Heisman that year. I I don't remember another defensive player who, in a given season, seemed pretty obvious to me that yes, he was the best player in the country on either side of the ball. So earlier this week, as we're taping, uh, ESPN had reported that the plan was for Dominican Sue to get released by the Dolphins. So I it got me thinking. You know, this guy was an all-time great college player, as we said, so dominant was the second pick of the draft in 2010. Now, he's been just five Pro Bowls, so it's not like he's been a, a bust. But I uh, I was asking Booger McFarland, who was a you know, great defensive lineman at LSU and played in the NFL for a long time, so what exactly happened? Why was he not, you know, this this completely dominant force? And he was you know, he explained because the NFL is a lot less physicality and more finesse now and Sue is really a power player and in today's NFL, the power players is being phased out. And he pointed to the fact that the Philadelphia Eagles starting center weighs only 275 pounds. And I said, well, why do you think that is? And he was like, you know, there's a few reasons. Teams are running more up-tempo. The running game isn't as important to 
a lot of teams and you got to be able to rush the passer. And he said, you know, that's something that really is not a Sue's forte. But it's interesting to hear some of that because we just hear how the game shifts so much. And I'm curious to see how it relates to college, where certainly a lot of people run up tempo. And the run game isn't that important to a lot of teams. Let me throw out something that's kind of the opposite of that. So when Reggie Bush came out of college, there was a lot of people who thought, oh, he's going to go in and just revolutionize what a running back in the NFL means because he can get to the outside, he can be a receiver. And then the, the, the argument against that was, well, all the defense, defenders are so much faster in the NFL, it'll just totally mitigate his advantage. And that's pretty much what happened. You know, he was a good player, but he wasn't anywhere close to like the level of dominance that he was in college. Yeah, However, I mean, the, well, go ahead. I was going to say this year's rookie of the year was came out of the SEC, was a better player in the NFL than he certainly was at Tennessee, Alvin Kamara. Mm-hmm. Same team, Saints, and he does a lot of the things, the same things you were kind of talking about. So that's what I'm saying, the game has changed so much since Reggie Bush would have come out of college that now like there was no, Christian McCaffrey is a player who is very much always compared to Reggie Bush. He's having success. He had success as a rookie uh, with the Panthers. Saquon Barkley, people are talking about as the possible number one pick, and I think you and I would both agree he's you're you're going to get the most out of Saquon Barkley if you're not just running him between the tackles. So, call it, uh, NFL offenses have changed now to the point where it's kind of the opposite, right? Like those players who didn't quite fit ten years ago fit better now. And whereas there's not as much of a demand for a, I mean, I saw that Derrick Henry is about to take over as the starting running back for the Titans, but less and less it seems like the guys in his mold are as in demand as a Saquon Barkley type. So does that mean we think that Todd Reesing, if he had come out now after having a great career at Kansas, <laughs> maybe maybe am I getting ahead of myself? I, I don't know about that. I mean, I do think it's opened up for more spread quarterbacks. How tall was Todd Reesing? 5'11"-ish. Oh, he was? So. I, for some reason in my head, I thought he was like 5'8". Uh, no, I mean, I think I maybe he was, maybe, I thought he was 5'11". I know he wasn't a big, big, Chase Daniel was maybe six feet, but he's like 225. You know, Baker's obviously pretty thick, thick quarterback. It's the guys who are kind of short and, and kind of frail, so... Yeah, according to Wikipedia, Todd Reesing, 5'11", 201. Okay, I, short, I literally shortchanged him there. LSU opened spring practice this week, and Ed Ogeron was talking, I think this was an article in the uh, Advocate there, that like basically, you know, you think of LSU over the years, you think Leonard Fournette, Darius Geis, some big featured running back, and then Les Miles would say, oh, we're going to throw the ball more, but they never did. Well, Ed Ogeron's saying, we don't have that guy anymore. We just don't have a featured back type running back. So we're, we really, truly are going to throw the ball a lot because that's the strength of the team. Do you buy it? I think they probably will do that. I think you'll see more running back by committee. I know they have an early enrollee freshman, Tay Province, that they're really excited about. But he is kind of what you're talking, what we're talking about with the Alvin Kamara type. Now, there's another kid coming in in the summer, Chris Curry, who's more of a between-the-tackles guy. But you know, not only did they lose Geis, but they also lost Daryl Williams, who was a really good other running back, who was a real, you know, kind of a bruiser. The offensive line they expect to be a strength, so I don't know how that lines up. But, you know, to me, ultimately, whether whoever's the offensive coordinator, I think the biggest piece here is going to be, will they be able to develop a quarterback? You know, whether it's Miles Brennan or Lowell Narcisse or Justin McMillan, they need somebody to step up. 
you know, I, I just think the receiver wise, they should be, I think they should be pretty good. People forget Jonathan Giles sat out last year. He was Texas Tech's probably second best player behind Pat Mahomes. I know they're excited about him, but again, if they don't have a quarterback who can complete the ball downfield consistently, because that was something Danny Etling didn't turn it over. But whenever you watch them play Alabama, and granted, Alabama is the gold standard, they just they had opportunities, but they could not take advantage of it. Stu, speaking of LSU, I'm glad you brought it up. So uh, Ross Dellinger from the Baton Rouge Advocate, really good beat reporter, had a story about Christian Fulton, who is a former five-star recruit at LSU, who has an attorney, and they are basically battling the NCA over Fulton is serving a two-year suspension from the NCA. He's already sat out one full year of games for a doctored or fraudulent drug test. I believe it's a PED test. Now, what's crazy to me here is a two-year suspension from the NCA for one fraudulent test. Like, this isn't a case... When I first heard this, I was like, well, how many times did he test positive? But LSU, you got to remember, they like they booted out Tyron Matthew. I think their policy is, if you have six positive tests, you're gone, or whatever. Six? And that was the six. threshold. Six positive I be- tests. I believe that's what it was back when Tyron Matthew was there. I don't know if it's exactly that now, but that's what I believe it was back then. Now that's over a college career. It's not over, you know, one one thing. But yeah, that's. That was the time. But in the case of Fulton, that's not what this is at all. It, it is a fraudulent test. The NCAA has suspended him two years. So I'm going to ask you this. A couple of years ago, there was a really good defensive back in the SEC who got a second DUI. To me, DUI is much more of a, of a dangerous crime than, than a uh, positive drug test. And if it's a marijuana test, if it's whatever. But, like, you know, you get a DUI, you could kill people. Not just yourself, you can kill people. You have a second one, the player doesn't even get suspended one game. You know, we've seen other instances where, you know, the Joe Mixon case, you know, obviously it happened when he was in Oklahoma. Oklahoma sat him out for a year. But, you know, some of these things, it's like, to me, again, we talked about the NCAA system of justice. It seems really bizarre. It just seems very out of whack to me. It is. And so they've always had a very punitive approach to drug testing you you know it's basically like if if you test positive after an ncaa championship event you're suspended for a year right that happened with that happened with i want to say one of the oregon receivers well okay i was thinking of football because i ended up reporting on it now i'm blanking on who exactly it was it was darren carrington okay yeah i remember before the uh we were out on the road going to dinner and i think i source had told me that even though the game had yet been played that oregon had already had the appeal and it had already been denied and so he ended up having to miss the first half of the next season as well Uh yeah the ncaa is very punitive with drug testing where it's not like the six failed drug tests like you said that is like the first strike and this is just to clarify so schools do their own drug tests and they all have their own policies, and they all vary dramatically. Like, for instance, Georgia under Mark Richt, you know, they would guys would get punished really early as compared to some other schools. But the NCAA tests at championship events, and if you fail, you're suspended for a year. That's what happened with Will Greer, I believe. So, 
and, and I guess what I would say is whether that's a fair punishment or not, you just know that they're only catching like a tiny, tiny percentage of people who are actually who would actually test positive if if caught, basically. So it just seems really unfair that if you're just one of the unlucky ones that actually gets caught, that you have to serve such a severe punishment relative to, like you said, stuff that's administered by the school. It's really up to the coach sometimes or the AD or the school what the punishment is for a DUI or domestic violence arrest or any number of things that I think we would agree are more serious. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, I feel like the NCA is more concerned over seemingly less stuff than some of the more offensive things that are, that seem to go on that quite honestly, I think you'd send a bit stronger message if you'd say, okay, this is something we're not going to tolerate as opposed to, and again, I'm not giving a pass for somebody who, who, I don't know, maybe I am giving a pass for somebody who, who, uh, is smoking weed in their, in their, house and get cited for it or something i don't think it's that they don't care it's that they performance enhancing uh drugs are something that directly affect the but some of these of it, it, what we're talking about performance enhancing is also kind of we're not necessarily all talking about like steroids no in fact it always seems like the guys the few guys that do get caught always claim that it was something they took inadvertently it was a supplement that at, at that you buy a gnc or something but anyway you know, they, they monitor that. Because, well, that's pretty cut and dry. Either you pass the test or you don't. Whereas in the criminal justice system, there's just so many different factors. Is, is there going to be a plea bargain? This There's so many different factors that go into that. And it just it just wouldn't be realistic. Like, would somebody be sitting in Indianapolis? Like, they would you'd file the court reports to them, and they would decide whether or not this fit a certain... I mean, I know Roger Goodell does it to some extent, but yeah. you're talking about thousands and thousands of athletes across the NCAA. So they just leave that to the schools. I don't know if there is a good way to like universally apply that. I do wish that schools had a more standardized, like it, it shouldn't be that one school, you can get three free passes on drug tests and another school, the first one gets you suspended. Like there should be some sort of uniformity to it, but at the end of the day, there's not. And, and another thing is a lot of the schools don't actually enforce the policies that they do have and who's really holding them to it. Yeah. Cause, cause it's the, the drug test policies are all over the map. Right. So, exactly. Well, how about we get to our guest? Okay. Now we're pleased to be joined by Ryan Abraham. You can follow him on Twitter at, at inside Troy. He is the owner and publisher of uscfootball.com. He's actually the most probably plugged-in source that has been covering USC for a long time. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Before we get into all the college football stuff, your basketball program were a number two seed, right, in the, in the Pac-12 tournament, and they somehow did not make it in. Why, what are USC fa- folks thinking about that? Yeah, I was like, well, thanks for having me on, guys. I was actually in New York for my wife's birthday, and I was watching on one of the you know, when the selection committee came out, I'm like looking at the brackets like, oh, where's USC? Where's USC? Oh, they're not there. So it's kind of strange. Yeah, they, you know, they finished second in the regular season, the Pac-12 behind Arizona. They were the number two seed. They finished, you know, second in the, the conference tournament. And they had a lead on Arizona at the half and ended up losing that one. And, you know, they had the highest RPI ever to be snubbed. I think by 15 spots, they were number 35. 
so the criteria has always changed and but you know it, it seemed like a pretty big snub now i you know understand they they lost some games and that you know against the the better teams they they seem to lose those games but a lot of the usc fans were really upset they're not usually happy with the ncaa anyway and this is just one more reason for them to be uh you know upset about things i'm not a huge in the basketball i don't follow it a lot but you know just looking at that it seemed like they had a good enough resume you know 23 wins and all that to make it in now they're going to play in the nit and i just don't think there's going to be a whole lot of interest in that yeah so they the, the selection show this year which by the way they should never tinker with the, anytime they one of these networks try to tinker with the selection show it's just met with universal backlash and so this year's big change was unveiling the teams in alphabetical order so people pretty quickly caught on that like like I knew, oh, okay, so Arizona, we'll find out about Arizona State real quickly, you know, and then you're just <laughs> waiting. So it got to the S's, and there was no Southern Cal. So you're like, well, is it, are they going to show up in the U's? I could, <laughs> I could swear, was it Greg Gumbel that was reading it? I could swear he said, and that's the end of the at-large teams, before it got to UCLA. But anyway, I mean, I can understand why they're disappointed, Ryan, but you know, being a bracketology person, it, it wasn't all that shocking. I mean, they... They just didn't have good win. They didn't beat any. There was only a few good teams in the Pac-12, and they didn't beat any of them. So it's not entirely shocking. Now, I'm not saying, oh, Syracuse definitely should have been in instead. It's Neither of them were particularly overwhelming. But it didn't shock me quite as much as it seemed to shock Andy Enfield and uh, and the people there. Can we, uh, before we go to football, Just I saw this on my Twitter feed a bunch from some media folks, not only pointing out that USC didn't get in, but also that Arizona maybe got snubbed a little bit as well. Not snubbed, but were not as held in high regard. I don't know if that's a Pac-12 thing, or was that folks that were in the NCAA's crosshairs with the FBI investigation? Do you give any credence to that conspiracy theory? Yeah, Bruce, I wouldn't put it past the NCAA. I mean, it's certainly... Uh, if you look at the Pac-12 in general, only one you know team that actually you know gets in with Arizona to the actual field of 64. The other two making into the you know the first four with UCLA and, and Arizona State. They just seem to discount everything that was Pac-12, even though Arizona did look like a you know a much better team later on in the season. But you know there was schools that were involved in the FBI. Maybe I mean the, the NCAA is not going to say that, but. I wouldn't put it past the NCAA at this point. Just you just don't understand what the the selection is at all. You know whatever they're doing, they always seem to be doing things for political reasons. So this could be that too. So, Bracketologist, what do you think? No, I don't buy it. I don't buy any of the conspiracy theories. The NCAA, you know, when you say NCAA, you can mean any number of different things, right? So the the people who decided the USC's fate in the Reggie Bush sanctions, who USC fans have understandably you know negative feelings about to this day are not the same people who are would be dealing with the FBI stuff, and the people who would be dealing with the FBI stuff are not the same people who are in that room selecting the teams in the tournament. So I don't, I don't think, I think it was that if you want to point to a flaw in the system, and there are several flaws in the selection system, but basically everything gets decided in those first 11 non-conference games because that pretty much locks in, like after that, at that point in the season, you know, if the Pac-12 and the, this happened to the Big Ten too struggles in the non-conference, then that drags down all those teams' RPI ratings, and then they get into conference season, and the committee wants to, to see you beat top 50 RPI teams, but they don't have any to beat. So even if you do, like you said, like get a lot better over the course of the season, it's not necessarily reflected in the RPI rankings. That's that's a flaw, and that definitely worked against SC. All right, so let's USC got back on the field a week ago for spring practice. 
different look. No Sam Darnold. What's the vibe on this team? They won the Pac-12, Ryan, but they looked pretty. They were kind of it was a dud in their performance in the Cotton Bowl against Ohio State. There's been some staff shake up a little bit. How confident are USC folks about this team going into 2018? Yeah, Bruce, it's it's pretty mixed as far as the fan base goes. If you look on paper, what Clay Helton did, you know, someone that came in with no head coaching experience to to win 10 games and win the Rose Bowl in his first full year and then win the Pac-12, you know, 11 games in his second year. On paper, that looks pretty good. But there's a lot of fans that are really unhappy with the Clay Helton era, the, the, how he was hired, not showing up really against Notre Dame this past year. And, and like you said, laying an egg in the, in the Cotton Bowl against Ohio State. The, the power programs, the national programs that you want to be as a USC person compared against they didn't fare that well, uh, especially this past year. And they had some really good wins, beating playoff team Washington on the road in 2016. And, of course, Penn State that was you know, on fire. Two teams that were really playing at a high level. And it was a classic Rose Bowl when they, when they met. So, I mean, there's some really good wins there for Clay Helton. But he hasn't won over a lot of these USC fans. And wh- you mentioned the Sam Darnold factor. The, the USC fans that are really down on Clay Helton are pointing to this year. Watch what happens when Sam Darnold is gone. So they're saying that most of these wins, you know, from and most of the success that Clay Allen's had is because of the special player in Sam Darnold, who may up end up being, you know, the first overall pick. So this spring practice is kind of interesting because you really, you only have two scholarship quarterbacks in uh, redshirt sophomore, Matt Fink, and then redshirt freshman, Jack Sears, they'll be competing. And then JT Daniels, who's reclassifying and, be, you know, he'll he's supposed to be a high school senior. He's actually going to start at USC uh, early in the fall, he's going to come in and compete for fall camp. So right now it's just kind of watching Matt Fink and Jack Sears, seeing if someone can capture that magic. But the vibe around the first week of practice has just been kind of just knowing that Sam Darnold's not there and you're seeing a lot of young players kind of getting involved. But not having Sam Darnold there is definitely going to be a different feel because that's what this coaching staff has known. They've always had him to rely on. Now they're going to have to figure out something else to do to, to find success on the field without Sam Darnold. Is there a... Is there still buzz about, like, because you mentioned, you know, he hasn't quite won over the fan base. And now I would think expectations will be lower going into this season than they were the last couple of years. Or is that not the case? Is there still buzz among USC fans that, you know, maybe for because of younger players coming up or they obviously recruited very well, that, well, maybe this team will be a national championship contender? Yeah, I don't think it's a people are looking at it as a national championship contender just from, you know, they, losing your top running back, top quarterback, and top wide receiver, and a couple of key players on defense. But they, they do have a lot of depth coming back. Probably just not a superstar that you can kind of point to as being the face of the program. We'll have to see how that develops. But I think the expectations are still there. The Pac-12, as you know, was pretty down, you know, going 1-8 and eight in bowl games. So I think that kind of diminished the fact that, you know, USC won the Pac-12. Now, they had won the Pac-12 since 2008. So it's been a while. So I think... USC fans are expecting at least winning the Pac-12 again. I'm not sure it would be some sort of kind of playoff year where a lot of people thought last year might be, but I think not winning the Pac-12 would be a disappointment for USC fans, especially with all the coaching turnover. Now you brought in some, you know, some big names like Chip Kelly and Kevin Sublin in the South, but USC should still be the going away favorite to win the South and, you know, see, you know, competing with the Stanford's or Oregon or Washington, some of the powers in the North, I think it'll be hard to, to win again. But I think USC, USC fans certainly expect to at least win the division and, and certainly try to win the Pac-12 again. 
if they go eight and four, you know, Lynn Swan, uh, Stu and I talked about this a few weeks ago. Lynn Swan did a Q&A with Joey Kaufman, who's a beat writer down there. It wasn't like Lynn Swan was that effusive in the standing of where USC football was at this time. And maybe that's, you know, that kind of felt like a lot of the tone that, you know, folks would see if they look at your peristyle message board where, you know, it's diehard USC fans and the expectations are where, where Pete Carroll was. What would be good enough for them to say, okay, this will, short of him, Clay Helton, getting USC into the playoff, what would be good enough for them to say, okay, he's not on the hot seat after this? Is it to get to 10 wins? If, they're, if it's 9-4, and four, is that a big problem? What, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And the problem is we just don't know enough about Lynn Swan as being an athletic director. Now, we, we, he doesn't talk a whole lot. Uh, we've heard his comments. I mean, after the 2016 season, uh, he thought the Rose Bowl was great, but you know he, he felt that you need to win the conference championship. Clay Helton was able to do that, but you didn't do well against national powers, which I think is something that the Clay uh, that Lynn Swan holds in high regard too. If you're not playing well against the Notre Dames and, and Ohio States of the world, I don't think you're doing what he would like you to do. Uh, it's hard, you know. USC, the last three athletic directors they've hired have all been former players, and the last two had no you know, administration experience in a university at all. So it's kind of, you have to kind of wait and, and feel it out a little bit. They just signed him to an extension. And because USC is a private school, you don't know the the monetary, you know, any kind of disclosures or, you know, the, the financial terms of that extension. But my guess would be, Bruce, that if it's a an eight and four thing and maybe you don't win the Pac-12 South and you lose to Texas on the road, you lose to Stanford on the road early in the season, I think there's some, options there that that Lin Swan could actually do something now will he would he fire Clay Helton you know one year after hiring extension I don't know if eight and four would get it done if it was like a seven and five record I think that could possibly happen I think there'll be a lot of grumblings if it was more of an eight and four and then you know nine wins or above I think a lot of the fan base would maybe wouldn't be as happy especially if you're not winning the Pac-12 and you're losing a few games you you probably shouldn't lose but I, I think that you know, short of making the playoff, you're probably not going to keep those USC fans happy. Even though you're, you're losing Sam Darnold and all that this year. So I, I think it would be tough for them to do something with Clay Helton. But if it was like a seven-win type of season, similar to 2013 after Lane Kiffin when he went 10-2 and two and all the expectations were super high the next year and then they up laying an egg. If something like that happened, I think maybe you would see Lin Swan make a move. Okay, we'll get back to the podcast in a second. But now, Stu, what has been one of the best sponsored deals we've ever provided our Audible listeners? Lisa, L-E-E-S-A, Lisa Mattresses, who Bruce and I both, we both have one. We both know just how comfortable they are. And the deal they've been giving to our Audible listeners is incredible. You go to lisa.com, use promo code AUDIBLE, and get $100 off of a mattress of your choosing. Bruce, did you know that Lisa is driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody? I didn't know that was the start of it, but it's definitely worked out on both our, about my side and your side, certainly. Absolutely. Lisa, they're a socially conscious company. They donate one mattress for to a shelter for every 10 that they sell through their 110 program. Over 22,000 mattresses have been donated so far. Lisa also plants one tree for every mattress sold and donates 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. So again, go to lisa.com audible 
Use promo code Audible to get $100 off the Lisa mattress of your choosing. That's lisa.com slash audible. So what's been the reaction to Chip Kelly taking over across town? On message boards, it's kind of split. I was always one that thought Chip Kelly would do great in college. There's a lot of the fans that, even when USC was looking for a coach, didn't want Chip Kelly. But there's a lot of fans Which that do. Which is so insane, I think by the way. <laughs> yes. I, I think it's kind of split down the middle. But it, it basically raises the bar for Clay Helton because USC ended up hiring basically like a no-name guy, right? Someone that no one in the top 50 would have hired him as their head coach. Chip Kelly was the guy that everybody wanted. Just like Tom Herman last year, you know, right or wrong, that's the, the that's the coveted prize. And UCLA, USC's hated rival, got the coveted prize. So it brings notoriety. It brings attention to that rivalry. And if, if for whatever reason, UCLA is probably not going to be that good in 2018. But if they somehow are able to beat USC, I put I think that puts a lot of pressure on Clay Helton. So it just heightens everything to me, Stu, uh, having him in there. He was the guy, USC fans wanted the USC administration to go out and make a big home run hire. They didn't do that. UCLA did. So we'll see how one way works, you know, one strategy works versus another, right in the same city. Ryan, the uh, with Darnold moving on, so what do you see from the quarterback race that's going to shape up? As you mentioned, JT Daniels isn't there yet. He'll get there in the summer. He did reclassify, but he's actually, he's, you know, it's almost like he's the same age as most, most incoming freshmen are going to be. Anyway, you saw him out in, uh, was it the Army All-America game down in San Antonio? Is that what yeah. you covered? So you saw him compared to other, other people. I've heard some great things about Amon Ross, St. Brown, who sounds like if he's as advertised from some football people I've talked to, he's, a, he's an impact receiver. Uh, do you think they will miss much of a beat at quarterback, with whether it's Daniels or these other two guys who were hyped in their own right? Yeah, I think I think they will. I think it's uh, Matt Fink came in was like kind of an afterthought. The you know the year he came in was the year KJ Costello uh, who ended up going to Stanford and Shea Patterson who ended up going to Old Miss and you know transferred to Michigan. USC was in on both of those guys, but Steve Sarkeesian kind of didn't pick one. Both ended up going someplace else, and they got Matt Fink as sort of a consolation prize. He was like a three star guy. I think he's got a lot better since he's been at USC. You know, this will be his third year. He had a fifty one yard touchdown run against Oregon State last year, but only has played mop-up duties. And Jack Sears came in. He was actually Sam Darnold's backup at San Clemente High School, more of a highly touted, uh, highly regarded quarterback, very athletic, was committed to Duke and ended up switching and picking USC. But I think his transition to, from high school to college is, you know, it's it's going to take a little while. So I don't think either one of those guys are going to light the world on fire. JT Daniels, I think, is the most talented of all of those. But like you said, he's going to be you know, an incoming freshman really, you know, but he started for three years at modern day. He's got tons of high school experience. I just don't know how long it's going to take him to make that transition as well. If you want to try to get back to that next level, I think more of a Matt Fink or a Jack Sears can, can do it without having the focus of the offense be on the quarterback. I think if you go with JT Daniels, the focus could be on him throwing to his high school teammate, Amon Ross St. Brown, another five-star guy. So it might be something similar to what we saw a couple of years ago where, USC starts somebody the first few games and then switches to the more talented younger guy later on, which is with Sam Darnold. They might do that again with JT Daniels. But I think to be at that high level where you're playing with Sam Darnold, it's probably going to have to be JT Daniels at some point. So guys, I was thinking we should take a step back from SC and talk about the Pac-12 as a whole. John Wilner had a tweet after you know the selection show that kind of put things in star- stark perspective. 
the Pac-12 and the two major sports this past week or this past uh, school year, one and eight in the bowl games, and only three NCAA tournament teams. And as you mentioned, uh, Ryan, only one of them avoided the um, Dayton play-in game. Then you've got the just kind of like never-ending issues about the Pac-12 network and not being on DirecTV and whatnot. What can this conference do at this point to, I mean, I feel like this this weekend it was really noticeable to me how the Pac-12 tournament nationally was just completely out of sight, out of mind. In fact, the American conference got a lot more exposure for being on uh, CBS uh, in the windows where the Big Ten used to be. The Pac-12 tournament, I mean, most of those games were on the Pac-12 network or they were taking place at, you know, midnight Eastern. I mean, Larry Scott got booed a lot when he went to give Arizona the trophy. <laughs> I, I, You know, when he first got there, he was seen as very innovative and, and he certainly upgraded their TV deal at the time. And now I feel like things have regressed back to almost where they were when he got there. Yeah, he's the highest paid commissioner. Can you imagine that? Like of, of all the power, of all the, the conferences in the country. And the stuff that they do, I mean, it's just baffling year after year, you know, seeing the scheduling conflicts, seeing truck racing get priority over a game between, <laughs> you know, Stanford and Washington. I mean, and the fact, you know, USC plays Stanford to open the Pac-12 every year. You, could you imagine Auburn and LSU or, you know, Alabama and LSU playing like the first, you know, they would never do that if you're in the SEC. They just don't treat it the same way as some of these other conferences. And I think the one... The big thing you're going to see going forward, you know, a program like USC in Los Angeles with the media market, you look at their TV revenue from the conference compared to like Rutgers or Iowa State. And for USC to be far, far behind programs like that, to the tune of going to be like a quarter of a billion dollars over five years, I mean, or, or over a 10 year span. If it's crazy, the amount of money that USC and UCLA and some of the, the power programs in the Pac-12 are leaving on the table and those schools make the same amount as a Washington State or an Oregon State or a Utah. Like they all make the same amount of money, and that TV deal that tier, that doesn't go away until 2024. So, like you said, Stu, it looked good when they signed it. It was a two billion dollar deal and all that. But you had ESPN and Fox willing to work together on a deal. How bad did that deal have to be for the Pac-12 for those bitter rivals to kind of work together? So, it's been. It's not. It doesn't seem like it's getting any better. And you know, you can look at the football results this past year and, and what's happened in basketball. Those are the big sports, the revenue sports. And it's nice that you can show women's lacrosse and water polo and all that kind of stuff on the Pac-12 network and all these live events. But Wilner did a great piece. He he got some information on the the ratings for those for those networks, which the Pac-12 doesn't release or talk about. They were really getting a zero in a lot of those things if it wasn't a football or a basketball thing. So they have to do something. I don't know what they can do at this point. And then the, the Pac-12 presidents just seem to let Larry Scott go and, and do this. I think you're going to look five years from now. If it keeps going without anything changing, the Pac-12 is going to be so far behind the other conferences. Just all the money that they're leaving on the table with these Pac-12 TV deals. I'm not sure what they can do, Stu, but they have to do something because it's really trending in the wrong direction if you're a Pac-12 fan. Ryan, as somebody who spent a little bit of time on your site's message boards, I feel like there is a faction, I don't know how big, but of the USC fan base that would like, that almost looks at Texas, for example, and their situation and their their deal with the pack, with the Big 12 kind of almost admires it and says, you know what, they're the big dog in that conference. We're clearly the big dog in our conference. And we're, we're kind of just getting crumbs. Why should we do this we should go do our own thing we should try to do 
maybe what Notre Dame has done. Can we can we get that kind of deal? A, is there how sizable do you think that that group is as vocal? And I'll throw this out to Stu as well. Do you guys think it would be viable if USC entertained that idea? Yeah, there's a. I mean, there's a, certainly a large contingent of USC fans that are just tired of it. Like, what does the Pac-12 bring USC? Now, USC brings a lot to the Pac-12. The school, you know, the re, part of the reason that they have a nine-conference game schedule is so all the schools in the Northwest can come to Los Angeles and play and help with the recruiting. So, I think USC doesn't get. You don't need to be treated like a you know put on a pedestal, but. You shouldn't be treated exactly, you know, it's almost like socialism. Like, everyone is exactly the same. And you just wouldn't see that in the other conferences. They don't treat Texas the same as Iowa State. Or they don't treat Alabama the same, you know, as Ole Miss, things like Vanderbilt or whatever. So, that's what they, they do in the Pac-12. And I think that's what USC fans are kind of fed up with. At least the option of it. I don't think the current administration would want to go and, and look at an independent route or join another conference or anything like that. But I think if you at least explore that, at least put that out on the table that it would help your relationship, you help with what the PAC 12 would bring to the conference. I think USC just kind of goes along with whatever they did it with the NCAA. They're just doing it with the conference. And I think a lot of the fans are kind of tired of it and say, look, you got a big stick swing it every once in a while. And USC just doesn't seem to be doing that. I don't know how viable it would be. I think at least they should explore it. So you could kind of, you know, see what the TV deals would be like, how much more money you would make and all of that how the other sports would play out. I think they should at least explore it to try to get a better deal from the Pac-12. But it just I don't think the, the current administration is interested in doing that. So just a couple of things here. So equal revenue distribution within the conference is, is fairly common. The Big Ten has always done it that way. The SEC does it that way. I think the only one that doesn't do it right now is the, well, the ACC might be the same way, but the Big 12 definitely doesn't do it. And so the Pac-10, before Larry Scott did, got there, the Pac-10 did do it the way you're suggesting, where USC, UCLA got more money because they got, you know, they were in the bigger games more often. And he convinced them when they were forming the network that they needed to do it the Big 12 way, everybody splits it equally. The deal at the time was actually reset the whole market. Like, I remember at the time, people were amazed. How did the Pac-12 get that kind of TV money? The problem was... They were just the first one up. And then when it became the SEC's turn and the Big Ten's turn, you know, they all were able to, to reset it themselves and get even more money. In terms of the question Bruce asked, is it viable to go independent? I'm going to say no for a reason that is going to be a little sensitive to USC fans. But Notre Dame has this huge national following and they're very, very loyal. You know, Notre Dame Stadium is sold out every week. As you know, being on the West Coast, guys... SC interest in SC football kind of fluctuates a lot year to year based on whether they're seen as a national title contender or not. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with you, Stu. I think what could you do? Maybe you would certainly not be as successful as Notre Dame on the independent side. Uh, you could partner with Notre Dame and be the other, you know, NBC game. I think there's a lot of options you could look at where, yes, would it have that same level of success? Probably not. But could you have a way better TV deal, even just doing your own tier three rights that they basically get nothing from because of the Pac-12 network and and help your schedule a bit? I think there's at least some options there that maybe it's not full on independent. Maybe there's some other things you could do, but at least exploring those and letting putting the Pac-12 on notice that like, look, we're not getting treated very well here. You're putting us on a Friday night road game, you know, following a road game and, and, and all those kind of things that you know people have complained about the Pac-12 schedule. And, and revenue-wise, I think you could at least look into that to get yourself a better deal 
but like I said, I don't think USC administration is even like thinking about doing that, even though a lot of USC fans would like them to. Why do we think the product on the field, like there was a period there a couple years ago, and maybe it's just cyclical, but there was a period there a couple years ago when, I mean, first of all, when the new TV revenue did kick in, Washington State was able to go out and hire Mike Leach, Arizona went out and hired Rich Rodriguez, etc. And there was a feeling that the conference had upgraded its coaching lineup. And it felt for a couple of years like it, like the Pac-12, you know, when when Oregon still had it rolling, Stanford was going, and SC, like there was there were a lot of games, must-see games in the Pac-12 every week. And I feel like by last year, it was like that Stanford-Washington Friday night game, and that was about it. Are there any theories why the conference as a whole regressed as badly as it did last year? No, it's a good point. And I think some of the, the television times, too, like you're talking about that Stanford-Washington game, to have that on a Friday night was criminal. You know, like, what are you doing that? USC and Washington State end up playing on a Friday night. It would have, they would have college game day would have come to Pullman for the first time ever. And they're the ones that got the streak with the, you know, the Washington State flag, mm-hmm. 100 whatever games in a row, if that game just wasn't on a Friday night. So I think the Pac-12 doesn't do itself any favors uh, with the schedule. And having USC and Stanford play early in the season, like I said, but, you know, that, that was a good boom back in, like, 2012 when all the coaches and stuff were hired. But we're seeing some of those people go away. We're seeing USC kind of rising back to prominence a little bit. And I think, you know, it, it needs to be a Pac-12 where it can be good with USC being good, too, where it seems like it's only if, if USC is bad, then the rest of the conference can be good. But if USC is good, the rest of the conference ends up being bad. They need them both to be able to work together and have some battles where, like people thought maybe Washington and USC would go into the Pac-12 championship game undefeated. Obviously, that didn't happen. But, you know, things like that, where I think the Pac-12 needs to get there. I'm just not sure if they're going to be able to be. Well, you know, USC recruits at a high level still. Maybe Clay Hilton will be able to kind of give, bring them back. But they need the rest of the Pac-12 to be able to be good, too. Otherwise, you're just not going to have much of a shot at making the playoff or if it's a USC or a Washington or whoever ends up being good that year. Well, I really think if you look at the recruiting rankings, a couple of the ones that have kind of underperformed, the biggest one was UCLA. I mean, UCLA was consistently a top 20, you know, ranked recruiting class. Go back to 2000 and I guess it's 2015. They had the number 12 class, according to 247. And it just feels like the ones who have overperformed, if you look at recruiting rankings, would be certainly Utah. I would put Washington State in there. But then it's a drop-off. I mean, you know, if you look at the top 20 rankings, you know, over the last five years, you definitely have USC. You'll have UCLA. You might have Stanford in there, depending on class size. Maybe Washington. Maybe Oregon. And that's about it. And I just feel like you could argue that a lot of the people who do the recruiting rankings also are based on the other side of the country. And it's tilted if you look at, like, the top 300 or top 500 players. The majority of them are not on the West Coast. So is that a perception or is a reality? Whatever it is, whether they're not developing players, whether you've had some inconsistency, because as Ryan alluded to, you know, that wave of coaches, there were four of them. It was Jim Mora, who got off to a fast start, Todd Graham and Rich Rodriguez, who also got off to a fast start, and Mike Leach, who didn't. Mike Leach is the only one who still, still has a job of that foursome. So, you know, when you look at how this has played out, it's been a lot of instability, and I think that that has kind of been the trademark here. Right, and well, Oregon was such a power there for about five years, and then they imploded. 
UCLA, like you said, was very promising early on in Jim Mora's tenure, and then things just went. I feel like when he switched to a pro-style offense, just the whole thing fell apart. I'm sure that wasn't the only reason, but that's when it started. So I think there's a lot riding on Chip Kelly. I mean, if he can make UCLA anything close to what he had Oregon, that would be, you know, kind of a new, a new power okay, now, can um, I that throw hasn't been that way in a while. It? Let me throw something else out at you guys. A lot of times with these staff hires, you see it in the in the SEC, and you certainly see it in the Big Ten, where they spend a ton of money on defensive coordinators. I don't feel like that has been the case at in the Pac-12. I mean, we were talking about UCLA. UCLA's defense was pretty awful, and they've cycled out of a few defensive coordinators as well. It's been an issue across the board pretty much in that league. The guy who I would argue was the best defensive coordinator in the conference left the conference to go be a co-defensive coordinator in the Big Ten, Alex Grinch. I mean, now they did spend a lot of money. Credit to Willie Taggart. He got spent a lot of money on on Jim Levitt, who did a good job at CU and I think is a big upgrade from what, what Oregon has. But if you look, it's just not, to me, that's been an issue, that they just haven't been good enough on defense. Yeah, I think you need more Jim Levitt's, like you mentioned, you know, highly coveted and did a good job at Colorado. And then, you know, Oregon, they needed defensive help and they bring a guy like that in. And the fact that they were able to keep him and, and pay him as much as they're paying him. But you don't have a lot of those in the Pac-12. Now, Clancy Pendergast is someone that's had a lot of success at USC uh, against some of the spread offenses. It's been, you know, been up or down, but he at least, you know, it seems an established name there. I think they need to be able to do that. But the, the, the issue with UCLA and Jim Mora was a defensive guy, so you expected that to be kind of his forte. And they were pretty bad on defense under him. So uh, we'll see if Chip Kelly's able to do that. But, how, you know, you felt like Oregon, maybe they could have got it rolling with Willie Taggart, and then he leaves after a year. At least the North has two really established guys, you know, two of the best in the country in Shaw and Peterson. And the South is now upgraded, I think, bringing in Kevin Sumlin and Chip Kelly. But it might take a little while for, to get that rolling. But this might be another one of those you know, 2012 years that Bruce was talking about where they bring in a bunch of interesting and, and high-profile coaches and they have some early success or maybe it takes a while like Mike Leach and they have some success a little bit later on. Yeah, to your point, Bruce, about assistant coaching salary, I just pulled up USC's uh, USA Today's database from last year. Now, this is <clears throat> 2017 salaries before this new cycle, but you had to go all the way down to number 12 to find the first Pac-12 assistant. That was Jim Levitt making $1.15 million. And then you have to go down to number 21 to find the next Pac-12 assistant. And then you have, So there were three Pac-12 assistants in the top 30 nationally in terms of salaries. That's pretty telling. You get what you pay for often. Mm-hmm. So I've heard that. All right, Ryan, what else is pissing you off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to thank you guys for the recommendation. I took my wife to New York. For a birthday, we stayed at the Standard, where you guys like to stay, and it was uh, it was amazing. So, hadn't been to New York for a couple of years, get to see all the the sites and everything. And and my wife Jan has never been, so we had a good time. So we appreciate you know the the help you guys provided. Thanks. Well, we want to thank you, people who are subscribers. Know every week, every episode starts with a ad for our presenting sponsor, Trader Joe's, and that relationship came to be through Ryan connecting us with Trader Joe's. Hey, my pleasure. He you know the. President of Trader, Trader is a great company. Uh, the president of Trader Joe's happens to be a USC guy and his dad, too. So they, they call and listen to my podcast. So we kind of built the relationship with them. And I'm glad we could uh, spit her around. It's, it's easy to talk about a product you like. And that's definitely what we all like. Absolutely. 
So, all right, tell us uh, where we can find your great work. Yeah, uh, USCFootball.com. We are now, we were, you know, we're part of Scout, which got bought by 24-7 Sports, and that's under the CBSI umbrella. So that's where we are now, USCFootball.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at InsideTroy. So this is, our, I think this will be our 23rd football season Amazing. covering the Trojans. So, yeah, it started in 96. So it's been, it's, it's been a minute. Were you, okay, so in 1996, like, was your, what was it a GeoCities site? Like, well, where? How were you doing your site in 1996? It was. You're exactly right. It was GeoCities. So I was a, I was an electrical engineer. That was my previous life, previous job. So I was using computers, bef- you know, before everyone had them on their desk. And so I created GeoCities, which they got bought by Yahoo. But they were basically a way, if you wanted to make a website, you would make it and you would put it in a neighborhood. I think the neighborhood was called the Coliseum because that's where all the sports stuff was. And then I bought the domain name, USAFootball.com, the next year in 97. And kind of started it from there. Can I just point out, uh, so Ryan actually by trade is an engineer. He left his business because he felt like I can make the same amount of money and have a lot more fun doing it. How many, how did your parents feel about that, by the way, when you told them what you were going to do? Yeah, that was 2004. So I'd worked as an engineer for 11 years when I decided to do this full time, you know, be online, you know, publisher, journalist, whatever. And uh, yeah, they were a little freaked out by it, but uh, it was, I, I mean, it was a neat experience. I, you know, it's I like I have this entrepreneurial spirit, and I'd always like writing, even though my you know my background's more technical. So I thought I would try it out, and it's been it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I, I was able to do it as a hobby or a side business for for many years before I jumped in full time. So yeah, since 2004, that's what I've been doing full time. What's been interesting to see, having lived out here and covered USC was early on, you know, Ryan and, and the recruiting sites, as most people would kind of think of them back then, were kind of the stepchild of the media scrums. And how much that has changed because there's been so much turnover in the newspaper business. You know, we had uh, a lot of the holdovers who were on that beat from the established papers out here no longer on the beat. And you're kind of the last man standing. Yeah, I've been I've been covering it the longest, and it's funny. I you know I have five people that work for me now. When we're seeing so much, you know, so many people getting laid off, and you know, Stu knows hiring a bunch of people with his company. I mean, you're you're bringing these former newspaper people in. So yeah, right now we the online media dominates these media scrums. The LA Times doesn't even have a full time USC guy right it's now. Crazy. So it is nuts. But yeah, it's 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 great to be able to to contribute and employ people and bring more writers into the fold, good people that maybe had lost their jobs at newspapers. I was just thinking, so, and Ryan, as you, you know, I can now relate about the, the challenges and, and both good and bad of, of hiring people. And you have to, it seems like you have to hire a couple, some new people every couple of years. Keely is your like main video host now. Yeah. Who, was she born before or after your site launched? <laughs> it's right about the time. I think she was born. I think it was ninety six or ninety five. So it's it's really close. So <laughs> it's from the beginning. That's how yeah. you know you've been doing it a long time. <laughs> All right, Ryan. Well, we appreciate you joining us and sharing some insight on not just USC but also the Pac twelve and your unique path into the media. Well, thanks guys for having me on. It's always fun listening to you guys show all the time and uh keep keep rolling on thanks again thanks ryan if you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed what are you waiting for please subscribe to the audible on apple podcasts 
Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Give us a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's, for making this possible. I'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Subscribe to my college football site, The All-American. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and you'll get 20% off of this annual subscription. And if you aren't following us on Twitter already, you can do so. Bruce is Bruce Feldman, CFB, and Stu is SL Mandel. See you next time. Come on, get-